The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. It's February 2013. And we're approaching the 204th anniversary of the birth of Abraham Lincoln. With well over 16,000 books already written about our 16th president, what new is left to say? Surprisingly, a lot. Lincoln had more impact on race relations than perhaps any other individual in in American history. And this week, we'll talk with Professor Brian Dirk about one of Lincoln's qualities that is so significant, relevant, and obvious that it It's astonishing that no one has addressed it in detail before. Professor Dirk is the author of Abraham Lincoln and White America, and he joins us today on Civil War Talk Radio. have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market step up to the microphone view the finalists right now on voiceamericakids.tv america's next great star is waiting to be discovered Step Up to the Microphone is an exclusive presentation for VoiceAmerica.tv, where you can see and hear America's next top child star. The program is hosted by Voice America's own Cassie Frazier, and new episodes will be available every week exclusively at VoiceAmericaKids.tv. You can say you saw them at the beginning of their superstar career. Tune in to VoiceAmericaKids.tv. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, on a bright, chilly Friday afternoon, Friday, February uh, February 8th it is, 2013, Last week was not the last Friday of January, but the first one of February, as uh, listeners were quick to point out afterward. Uh, but it just seemed that January uh, could not have gone by fast enough, and we were still mired in it. No, we are in February, the month of the birth of Abraham Lincoln, which will be uh, the uh, something we'll talk about today with our guest. But first, uh, a few housekeeping items, a reminder that our guest expresses his own opinions. I express mine. I don't speak for the University of North Carolina or East Carolina University. It's campus here in Greenville. Uh, and certainly don't share the governor's view that we are all here solely to train students to get jobs or that there's anything wrong with taking courses that make one a better person and a more full human being, even if it doesn't lead directly to your first uh, paycheck right after school. Uh, but we we chewed that over last week, and I will try not to repeat it week after week uh, as we merely attempt to defend the 500-year-old mission of the modern university against the uh, onslaught of, of uh, budget cutters in the state capitol. 
Anyway, moving along, we will have more shows coming up next uh, week. Next Friday will be uh, Barbara Gannon um, presenting, uh, talking with us about the one cause, not the lost cause, but the one cause, the uh, memories of GAR veterans, both white and black, after the war. And the following Friday, February 22nd, Tony Horwitz will be with us to talk about his relatively new book on John Brown, and I'm sure we'll get to talk a little bit about Confederates in the Attic as well, the great uh, classic book of the Civil War in the modern world. Then uh, March 1st, Doug Batson joins us to talk about Confederate General D.H. Hill, uh, whom he presents uh, in uh, uh, first-person form and thus uh, presumably knows a lot about after that, uh, currently the schedule looks like it may be difficult to get a show off during the entire month of March. We will have to revisit that as we go. Presently, uh, March 8th brings us to spring break here at, uh, at World Talk, uh, Civil War World Talk Radio headquarters and East Carolina University. And that day I also have, uh, my College roommates are coming to Greenville to see the campus of ECU and visit with me for a few days, and uh, I will have to, to prepare for them that Friday. The following week will still be on spring break. The following week after that, a conference is being presented here on campus, not a Civil War era one, dealing instead with the 300th anniversary of the Tuscarora War uh, in North Carolina, 1713. Uh, it's called New Haruka 300, and uh, while it's out of our topic, it will be very interesting, and as department chair, I may be required to be present uh, during the Friday afternoon event, which would prevent the show. And the following week after that, it's already Good Friday when the university closes at noon. So I'll see what we can do to work around and get at least one live show in the month of March, because it's too long to go without Civil War talk radio for for any of us, uh, uh, certainly uh, for me, if not for you. If you are craving more, uh, not necessarily Civil War talk radio, but the sound of my voice, a week from Saturday on February 16th, I will be presenting uh, in Raleigh at the, uh, I believe it is the State Archive. I can even look it up and tell you exactly where I'm speaking this time. Um well, I thought I could. You'd think it would be out here somewhere. But uh, uh, there it is. Lecture. Who Freed Who? Emancipation and the 13th Amendment uh, is going to be presented Saturday, February 16th, 1 p.m., the State Archives State Library Building in Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, it would be a pleasure to have anyone listening to the show come on by and uh, happy to talk to you there. Uh, before and after and during about Civil War topics. So lots going on, uh, but today uh, we want to get to our guest momentarily. One more thing, though, is to uh, thank, as always, our website uh, webmaster, Mark Gaffney, who runs the site www.impedimentsofwar.org. I need to find out, because listeners have asked me this question as well, uh, the source of the title, Impediments of War. Uh, I recall that when we first, when the, when the first 
set up the website, Civil War Talk Radio had been bought out by a speculator, and we couldn't use that title, that, that website name, unless we paid them. I don't know what they're asking, $2 million, $3 million, something. We had budgeted maybe, you know, 15 bucks at most. So that didn't happen. Uh, but they tired of holding on to it and let go of it, so we could get it now. But we're happy with where we are, impedimentsofwar.org. And, uh, Mark, if you're listening, uh, send me an email and remind me what, what the origin was of, of the uh, title. In other historical news regarding the show, I mentioned a few weeks ago while talking uh, to Harold Holzer, uh, well, a few months ago now, talking to Harold back in August, that he was a host of the show when it first began uh, eight years ago, nine years ago. And uh, Mark uh, did some research and discovered that the host of this show for the first three episodes was uh, Gaston Espinoza, who I, I don't know. Harold did, in fact, host the uh, fourth show. Uh, John Willis, I'm not sure who that was either, hosted the fifth one, and I hosted the sixth one, and the next 255 that followed, including this one. So uh, there was also an announcer for the first four or five shows who sort of emceed while I asked the questions, but that person has receded long ago into history and left me holding the bag. So we now have, uh, including today, 252 recorded hours of Civil War talk radio. It was not meant to be a long-term project, but it just kept growing. It's been a lot of fun, and I've learned a lot and got to re- read a lot of interesting books and talk to a lot of interesting people, uh, including today's, which we'll do just momentarily. The last point is, if you want to continue supporting the show, and thanks to all who've done so, um, a donation can be sent from the Impediments of War uh, talk uh, Impediments of War website or from the Civil War Talk Radio website on World Talk Radio. There's also uh, links now to the other site back and forth. We're getting more coordinated. And you can click on the PayPal button and for a contribution of $25 or more, I'll be happy to send you a copy of Did Lincoln Own Slaves? and other frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln or all for the regiment, the Army of the Ohio. We used to say $20. Uh, it's not just the cost of living that's going up or my desire to spend money on, on flub-dubs, uh, but rather the supply of books is running out. Uh, the, the boxes of books that seemed infinite at one time are, are starting to dwindle like our national forests. So if you have... Uh, so just to keep them lasting a little longer, we'll up the ante to a $25 donation. We'll get you a book. And uh, all those who have donated, uh, I cleared out the backlog this week and got your books in the mail. So if you did donate and, and haven't gotten a book in the next two weeks, let's say, please send me an email. And, of course, those are not tax-deductible contributions. They are purely for my individual indulgence, and it's not a charity. Well, long enough about that. Let's bring on our guest, Brian R. Dirk, author of Abraham Lincoln and White America. Brian, are you there? I'm right here, Jerry. How are you doing? <laughs> good. It, it, it's good to hear from you. I, we originally set up to do this last fall, and I dropped the ball on that one, but we're organized now, and it's, it's good to have you here. Well, uh, glad to be here. Yeah. yeah. 
You and I met uh, in the library of the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, Indiana, uh, many years ago. I will uh, remember that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You were were you working on your dissertation or were you teaching at that point? Do you recall? I believe I had I had just been finishing up my uh, my PhD at Kansas and was going to convert that into my first book, and I'd gone to look at that excellent vertical file of uh, newspaper archives that was at the Fort Wayne Museum. <laughs> And you you went on from that to your uh, to teach at Anderson University. Where was that your first job, and is that where you still are today? Uh, that's where I'm still today. That was my first and so far only job out of academia. I got very lucky and got a tenure track position. It'll be 15 years at the end of the semester. So, mm-hmm. holy cow! I, I would yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take my breath away when I say it like that. I'm like, my God, I've been here that long. But, yeah, I have a very good relationship with him. You know, my, my predecessor was um, George Rabel, another excellent Civil War historian. So we've got quite the tradition of good Civil War history there. You, yeah. Well, well, that those yeah, that, those are impressive footsteps to to stand in with George Rabel, uh, who is still uh, active, of course. He's at, at uh, Georgia, is he now? Uh, he's or? at Alabama, I believe. He's been Alabama. He was one of those yeah. states. One of uh, one of the finest. Civil War scholars, and one of the finest people I've ever met. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, yeah, that that is breathtaking. Because if you'd asked me to guess, I would have said, you know, how's the the tenure process going? Uh, <laughs> uh, Fifteen well, I think, years. I think that's the compliment. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, how did you get get your initial interest in the Civil War era? Well, I think what I can actually date that back to my grandma. Um, I was born and raised actually in central Missouri, right in the middle of guerrilla country. I mean, I, I, we literally, uh, my family is from Johnson County, which is adjacent to Jackson County, where they have the, you know, the famous order to evacuate all the families in 63 after Quantrill's raid. So I, I grew up with the Missouri guerrilla war as the Civil War stories that my, my grandmother would tell. And I think she just gave me a love of the period, although it's a, it's a different kind of war. I didn't so much grow up with Pickett's Charge. I grew up with bloody Bill Anderson and Bill Quantrill and all of that. And I believe it's just a family thing, and it just sort of stuck. <laughs> Well, that that is not uncommon. Certainly, many people have uh, that that deep background where they they heard it as children and continued on. Do you find your students in Indiana uh, at Anderson University different from uh, or different because they don't have that same background? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, I I grew up in Missouri, which is sort of both north and south and neither north and south at the same time. And then I uh, got my bachelor's degree at the University of Central Arkansas, so I lived in the south. And I found that down there people have a very immediate, almost tactile feel for the war because of the Confederacy and how immediate things are there. When I moved to Indiana, I've found that students have a deep interest in the war, but they don't seem to have quite as many family stories. They don't seem to have grown up with it sort of, you know, right in their faces the way I think you do in other parts of the country. Well, that that uh, reflects my experience, certainly, in Indiana. And, and sure. for me, moving to North Carolina was the first time living in the South, and, and it is different. Oh, well, I bet well, that was quite different. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Well, look, you've written uh, a, a book here, Abraham Lincoln and White America, which is... It, it could almost, from the title, people could almost wonder if it's a parody, uh, and, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but uh, 
you know, Nell Irvin Painter wrote a very uh, significant book on the history of white people in, in 2010. Right. But, right. but 25 years, do I have my, yeah, 25 years earlier, Martin Mull, the comedian, wrote a book called The History of White People in America. Yeah. Which yeah. was a parody, not, not of, of, of racial studies, but of, you know, of the idea that, that, we do separate books on black people in America, women in America. Uh, we don't bother with white people in America because every book's about them, practically. <laughs> yeah, uh, I can see the point. So, so is Abraham Lincoln and, and white America? What? I mean, it, it grabs the eye. What? What's this book about? Well, um, I had originally set out to do a book on just Lincoln and race. I wanted to look at what he thought of race as a concept, um, of black, white, uh, Native American, whatever. Um, but as I got further into the literature, you know, there's, there's quite a bit that's been written on, on Lincoln and African Americans, and of course, you know, a ton of stuff on Lincoln and emancipation. But nobody's really done much with sort of the flip side, which is, well, what did Lincoln think of white supremacy? What did what did he think of whiteness? And that's actually a relatively recent idea. You mentioned Nell Irvin Painter's book, which had a big influence on me. I read that. I, I, I greatly enjoyed it. And there's a literature out there that has a rather odd name called Whiteness Studies that is actually fairly recent. Um, David Ignatius... Um, uh, I'm sorry, David Rudiger, uh, uh, a few other scholars who began to ask, really in the early 90s, um, you know, how is it that we always assume that white people have no color, that they're normal, and everybody who's not white has color? That's in itself rather racist. And there's also a dimension of race relations in America that we must understand how white people saw themselves as white people, and they've written a whole literature on this, and there are sociologists and um, social psychologists who have written about the ways in which um, whiteness is constructed in American society. And Nella Van Painter, in her book that you mentioned, uh, kind of looked at the history of the way um, white people, dating back to the founding of this country, talked about the white race and white supremacy and all that. So I kind of plugged into that literature, and I was like, well, what exactly did Abraham Lincoln think white supremacy was? Was he even conscious of white supremacy? And then was he willing to challenge white supremacy when he began to make a greater and greater commitment to emancipation? Well, that the uh, there are so many things in there I want to pull back and ask about. Um, let's do this. I want to start with, with the idea that you mentioned sort of briefly about construction of race. That, that mm-hmm. the idea that, that race is not an inherent trait, but it's something we we invent. Uh, that's too big a question to to cut you off on. So let's take a short break right now and okay. come back and start with that in our second section. Uh, we're talking today with Brian R. Dirk, author of Abraham Lincoln and White America. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market 
Hi, this is Rochelle and Jeff from Travel Hub Radio with another Travel Hub tip. You're late for your flight and there is a long line at the security checkpoint. What can you do as a traveler to improve time and efficiency and make your flight quickly? One idea is to take everything out of your pockets, such as sunglasses, cell phones, PDAs, pagers, and other metal and electronic objects. Put them in an easily accessible pocket on your carry-on luggage. If security asks you to display or operate these items, they're right there. Plus, you won't hold up the line when you have to do the walk. A metal belt buckle or a wristwatch is usually not a problem, but be aware of them and ready to remove them quickly if needed. Wear comfortable shoes that can be quickly slipped off and on if you are asked to remove them. Most of all, if the security personnel give you specific directions or ask you a question, don't argue. Just comply and cooperate. It's not personal. They're just doing their job. For traveling tips and much more, make sure you tune in to Travel Hub Radio or listen to the show archives and podcast right here on World Talk Radio and at TravelHubRadio.com. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Brian R. Dirk, author of Abraham Lincoln and White America. A quick follow-up to the introductory materials today for those who are wondering where the name impedimentsofwar.org came from. Uh, the answer was presented during the break with incredible efficiency uh, by our webmaster, Mark Gaffney. It is in reference to the initial graphics uh, that you can still see on the site, uh, Civil War soldiers with jukeboxes or large radios or other impediments of war, a phrase you find in Sherman and Grant's memoirs. Uh, not fami- It's less familiar that they carried around these jukeboxes to listen to my show at the time, but uh, uh, through the miracle of Photoshop, we now have photographic proof of that. So uh, uh, that's where it comes from, and, and now, now we know the answer. So moving back to the 19th century, uh, Brian, I was asking you about the idea of the construction of race, the idea that uh, th- that race has to be invented. Uh, it, it's not simply a... Uh, a self-evident uh, scientific term. How how well, how did people do that, and how did they construct it in the 19th century? Well, that's um, that's oddly enough, it's actually a bit of an easier question to answer about how, say, for example, um, African American racial identity is constructed because people were conscious of that. You know, the problem is really that in Lincoln's day. You know, white is the majority race, and therefore people aren't often very conscious of being white. They just have what they call normal. So when I began to write this book, I had to start looking at, okay, um, growing up as a child in Kentucky and Indiana and then later in Illinois when he was a young man, and, you know, the formative years of Lincoln's life, what what are the what are the messages that are being communicated to him by the dominant culture of what whiteness is and what that means? Now, to be perfectly honest, I had to do some speculation here because, as I'm sure you're aware, you know Lincoln never kept a diary that we know of. Um, there's no one point where he sits down and talks about this. Um, so, what I suggest in the book is that. As far as we can tell, growing up, he never questioned any of these things, but if you look at um, the books that he read, um, and I looked at, you know, the images that he got from the Bible and from Pilgrim's Progress and all these 
various places where he would have gotten an influence on what whiteness was. The implication was that whiteness was the color of purity, whiteness was the color of good, blackness was the color of not good, of, of, of evil, and then, um, you know, Indian identity was savage and that kind of thing. And I kind of explore that and talk about how whiteness is given all of these positive attributes and that as far as we know, um, Lincoln did not question this, or if he did, there is absolutely no record of that. So I suggested in the book that as far as we can tell, he grew up with the same assumptions every other white child would have grown up with, which was whiteness is is the good race and on top and pure and that, and everything else was lesser. So that, as far as we could tell, that's that's how race would have been constructed for him by his culture. But, I mean, even race itself is is not... Uh, it's not always self-defining. We we use terms like black and white to describe people, but you know none of us have ever seen a literally black or literally white person. That would be be bizarre to see somebody who's <laughs> actually as black as a hockey puck or as white as a sheet of paper. That would be pathological. Absolutely uh, true. So we see all these shades of people, yet in our culture we have no problem instantly identifying someone as black or white no matter how fine the differences may be, uh, uh, we're all socialized, brought up that way to do that. That must have obviously been the case in Lincoln's time as well, that he, he, he could look at someone and say, oh, that person counts as black, that one counts as white. But, I mean, it's a fascinating process. How does that happen? Uh, well, that's a good question, Jared. You know, again, much of this has to be inferred. Um there is a there's actually a very well developed literature on this um, in other fields in social psychology in um, work in um, educational psychology there have been a great many studies done by um, by not historians but people that work in these fields to look at how say children are so- socialized into um, um, thinking in terms of black and white and categorization and I looked at that literature quite a bit because me personally I believe that historians need to make wise use of other disciplines in, in trying to find the answers we want to find. And what current research suggests is that race is partially constructed by simply the cognitive construction of our brains, that, that we, we categorize naturally the world around us through visual cues, and that Lincoln would certainly done it simply because he'd, he'd be wired that way. We all, we're all wired that way, you know, and then also... Looking at the um, the culture of his time period, um, the things that he would have gotten from um, they really didn't have a media back then per se, but they did have things they read, uh, the way they talked, um, the stereotypes that would have come down to them from things like jokes and humor and that sort of thing would have would have created a, a whiteness construction that, again, as far as we know, Lincoln Lincoln would have gotten like every other white child or young man of his age and there's no sense that he that he would have questioned that <laughs> was he able to transcend that in any way i mean he, he obviously he you know became a world historical figure sure. uh, very and, and uh, you know in in some ways he he went beyond uh, you know william lee miller has argued that he he was very different from all his all the other children in his neighborhood. He didn't uh, like to hunt and uh, swear and fight and and do a lot of things that they did. 
well, did he ever yeah. did talk about how how he managed this? Well, I I argue that he did transcend it in sort of fits and starts as as he was growing up. Um, part of what I looked at, um, in I believe it's chapter two of the book, was um, the the racial stereotype of what was just then being called white trash. The idea that there were poor whites and that there were these very ugly stereotypes that were wrapped around that. Um, this term actually was just coming into popular use, according to the research I did, at about the time Lincoln was growing up in the 1820s, uh, the 1830s, and this white trash stereotype um, implied um, poor whites who were shiftless, who were lazy, who had no education, um, who drank too much, um, who did you know what we would nowadays even call you know redneck that kind of thing. And uh, what I argued in the book is that Lincoln was desperate to escape that stereotype um, because that that is the stereotype that unfairly I believe was applied uh, to his father um, very often to people that came from his background. I mean nowadays you know we romanticize the frontier Lincoln, you know, the rail splitter, the man who was able to rise from these humble origins. That's part of the great Lincoln legend. But back in those days, before he'd ever actually become the great Lincoln, somebody who had seen Lincoln at the age of, like, you know, 16 years old on the Indiana frontier, you know, pushing a plow, dressed funny from a poor family, would probably have thought some version of white trash. So um, I think that was quite correct. I think Lincoln does transcend this because he is ambitious to escape that whole idea of being white trash. So he he almost, I mean, it's if he went down and did a checklist of how not to look white trash, Lincoln just checks them off. You know, white trash is not educated. Lincoln is a voracious reader. Uh, white trash drinks too much. Lincoln is a teetotaler. He never really gave the reasons why. Um, Lincoln doesn't hunt. Lincoln doesn't really gamble. He doesn't do a lot of the things that people associate with poor whites back then. So in, in his own personal uh Life, he attempts to transcend his own racial category. Uh, you, you have a chapter about, uh, the, the A and B, white A and black B. Yeah, yeah. Uh, referencing his, uh, a fragment that he wrote. It's, it's in Basler. It's not something he actually used in a, a public speech. Uh, but says, but, but is trying to rationalize why we have racial prejudice. Why is one person superior to another? And says, you know, it's because your skin is is fair, uh, and, and the other guy's is darker. It says, well, then then you should be a slave to the next man you meet with fairer skin than your own. Uh, I mean, he seems to, to to see through the in that sense the construction of race. That yes, yes, absolutely. And I I made a lot of that document because it suggests that um, Lincoln was unusual. I I I I've said this in the book. It's it's it, it would have been a rare person, a rare white person of his day, who would have written that even for private consumption. I mean, the vast majority of white people, I don't believe, as far as I can tell, consciously questioned uh, racial construction. And there's, there's good literature on that as well. You know, people have studied the racial landscape. Most people that are in Lincoln's position are so deeply embedded in the white culture that it's hard to step back. But he had his moments where he could. You know, there there was there was that time he encountered the coffle of slaves on the steamboat Lebanon. And whereas the vast majority of white people of his day would never have taken notice of these people, he does. You know, and then there's the document that you're referencing where, you know, privately he he lays out the logical absurdity of racism in a very powerful way that I don't think many other people of this time would have. 
perhaps one reason they wouldn't have was the uh, the prevalence of racial uh, of scientific racialism or racism. Uh, did did Lincoln ever? Do we know that he ever read any of these theories, uh, or did he ever I, comment on anything that you know of? That is a wonderful question, Jerry, and I wish I could answer it definitively. As far as we know, he didn't. Um, there's been some very good scholarship done on uh, the books that he read. Um, we've got a pretty good idea of what he was reading in, like, say, his law library, um, what what he read that Billy Herndon recommended to him. Um, you got to remember, too, this is, and I'm going to Nell Irvin Painter's book again. She did some excellent research on this and suggested that what we now call scientific racism was just beginning to become popular um, about the time Lincoln is entering adulthood. So this would have been new stuff. Um, but... As far as we know, he didn't read it. I saw, I found no record of him reading any of the, the pseudoscientific, uh, racism of these men who would, like, for example, measure the different sizes of black and white skulls. I've never, we don't think he, if he read that stuff, there's no record of it. Um, there's no record that he ever investigated anything resembling a scientific foundation for racial identity. There's just, there's, there's, there's an absence of any, any indication of that at all. And for a man who read so much and so widely, that's probably telling as well. Now, the, uh, he does talk about race on, on occasion, and uh, I mean, Lincoln does you know, speak about it, certainly. He, he certainly talks about slavery often enough. There are, there's, there's one speech where he talks about how the, the West He's arguing over his vision of, of excluding slavery from the Western territories, and he sees the the West as being a home uh, for. And I, I'm trying to remember it uh, from memory, but but for for Hans and Patrick and Baptiste, oh, yeah. Yeah, free right. white men everywhere, and he, he it's, yeah. it sticks out because he specifies free white men everywhere. Is this um, is it? Is this just an, sort of the unconscious racism that he has absorbed uh, by living in this time, or well, can we I, make anything else out of that comment? Yeah, I, you know that's 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 a hard thing to get at, you know, because you know you, we've all got to keep in mind that we we are studying a politician, and that there would have surely been some tension between perhaps what Lincoln privately thought, you know, we have the documents that you just mentioned, you know, the private documents, you know, why A can and slave B. On the other hand, he is speaking to a lily-white audience. There are no non-white voters uh, of any consequence. And, you know, when he gives a speech like that, um, again, this is guesswork. We have to speculate. But when he's giving a speech like that, you've got to figure, you know what, he's talking to a white audience. Um, he needs to get the votes. And to to say the West should be left open to let white people come in it um, would, would be good politics. It really would, you know. The, um, I'm, I'm, go ahead, yeah. Uh-huh. Right, see, there's an interesting comment uh, or an approach that James Liker wrote in an essay, which uh, I, I'm guessing you're familiar with because I found it in a book you edited, uh, Lincoln Emancipated. Uh, Jim's a very close grad school friend of mine, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and he... he Argues that another way of <clears throat> excuse me of looking at that is that uh, rather than than constricting the rights of settlers to white people, uh, Lincoln is expanding the definition of whiteness. That that uh, as you pointed out, you know, study whiteness studies have become uh, an element in academia, and 
there's a question of do the Irish count as white in 19th century America? Do Eastern right. Europeans count as white in late 19th century America? Right. Do Jews count as white uh, in, in 20th century America? At what point do these groups assimilate into full whiteness? Right. And, in, and so a speech like that, Lincoln is actually saying whiteness is open to all these people, all these immigrants. Uh, you know, our, our uh, you know, today we'd say our, our uh, you know, immigrants from Mexico white, uh, uh, or if, if they're clearly not black, yet are they white? Uh, many people would argue no, uh, in this, this cultural definition or constructed definition. So, right, right. I, I was wondering if Lincoln is thinking in that way, or, or if we're reading too much into that one comment. Well, you know, um, you, to be honest, I, I think you're really onto something there, you know, because, um, First of all, Lincoln would never have anything to do with what was called no nothingism, um, the uh, the nativist party. Um, there's this wonderful um, letter he writes to a political um, ally, in which he says, um, "I I have no patience with no nothingism. How could I? You know, how could you read the Declaration of Independence in such a way that it would exclude all of these people? You know." Um, so I, I I believe I believe he may be on something. Although I would I would be willing to bet that if he is Expanding the definition of who is white and who is not, it's probably more or less subconscious. You know, um, he does live in a time, as you point out, where there were people that attributed to the Irish um, racial characteristics and didn't include them in the family of whiteness, if you will, you know, uh, along with Jews and other people along those lines, whereas I think Lincoln um, at least subconsciously did. Well, I want to ask you a, a challenging question and again we'll take a break so you can think about it but okay. in writing a book like this uh, or any book that deals with race particularly uh, any book about Lincoln is going to have to touch on it but any book about race you run into the terminology issue uh, that almost any term to describe people of different races involves some sort of implication of acceptance of that term and uh, we've seen the evolution of racial terminology over the last 50 or 60 years. Uh, and that evolution, I would guess, is not over yet. Uh, so, so the question is, what, what choices did you make in this book? And, and what did you see in the historiography as you read about Lincoln and race? So we'll, uh, we'll take a break on that question, let you think about it for a moment, uh, and come right back. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Brian R. Dirk author of Abraham Lincoln and White America, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Are you where you want to be in life? Are you experiencing the happiness that you're entitled to? How'd you like to improve your life and well-being? Take a weekly break to listen to Change Your Mind, Change Your Life with your hosts, Jim and Lynn Swearingen. You'll learn how hypnosis can truly help you rewrite the chapters of your life. You'll also learn to change perceptions of what hypnosis is and what it isn't. Be sure to listen every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? 
One thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Brian R. Dirk, author of Abraham Lincoln and White America. We left off the second segment with a a question about what kind of terminology uh, has been used historically by authors writing about Lincoln and race. And uh, Brian, specifically, what what did you do in your writing? Did did you see this as an issue? And, And if so, what did you think about it? Well, the issue of terminology was a very difficult one, of course. As, as you point out, uh, Jerry, the, the truth is the, the very words themselves have changed um, dramatically, um, even just in the last 50 or 60 years, as to what we think is an acceptable way to refer to people of, of, of different ethnicities and not. Um, I, 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 I struggled with that. It was, it was hard at times to try to understand, okay, when Lincoln is talking about, say, black people, um, what kind of words does he use, and what does that indicate? You know, for example, um, there is, of course, the, the N-word, you know, um, that uh, Lincoln used far fewer times than, I'd say, for example, Stephen Douglas, um, that in the rare cases when he did use that term, um, he was almost always quoting somebody else. And I believe I said in the book that does say something. Um, he was far less willing to demonize black people by referring to them with racial epithets. On the other hand, he does sometimes subconsciously use what we would consider to be offensive terminology for black people that would have been standard operating procedure for whites of the day. There's a, a wartime reference in which he re- refers to black people as cuffy in front of some black people, and they object, and they say, Mr. President, uh, we really don't like that term, and Lincoln himself apologized, and he said, I'm very sorry, I grew up in Kentucky, and uh, it's just a habit of referring to black people in that way, you know, so it's a very slippery thing, um, I really try to be careful and not try to impose 21st century sensibilities on Lincoln, on the other hand, to be sensitive to the fact that within the context of his time, he seems to have avoided trying to use really ugly racial terms to describe people that weren't white. The, the, the only author who has really delved into this in detail uh, before your book was Lerone Bennett in, in 2000 in, in Forced into Glory, Abraham Lincoln's White Dream. And his conclusion is quite the opposite. He, he argues that Lincoln d- indulged in this kind of language and indulged in, in uh, and, and reveled in the cultural construction of whiteness of which he was a part. And, and uh, he, he was white and he knew it. And he, he uh, how, how do you respond to uh, Bennett's argument? Well, yeah, you know, I'm sure you're aware of this. Jerry Lerone Bennett is not a, not exactly a popular figure among Lincoln scholars by any stretch. I've actually met him. He's a, he's a very nice man, um, in, at least in that respect. But um, I just I, and I say this in the introduction of my book. I, I think I think Bennett has done us a service by provocatively asking questions about Lincoln and race 
that has kind of shaken Lincoln scholars out of our complacency. But I don't see Bennett as a systematic analyst of that. Um, he just seems to sort of reflexively throw in the kitchen sink every epithet that could be ascribed to Lincoln that had racial undertones, every single solitary anecdote that he could possibly come up with that would make Lincoln look bad in that regard. He just sort of throws uncritically into this book without stopping to say, well, wait a minute, what's the context of this? For example, when he refers to Lincoln, you know, using the N-word repeatedly, he doesn't seem to follow through and see, okay, why is he saying that? And then if you start looking at the actual document, well, he's not really using it. He's, he's quoting other people using it, you know, um, and there's, 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 a, there's, a subtle, there's a subtlety to that that I think is lost on Bennett, cause, because Bennett has a very partisan, very, very, um, very intense need to, to prove that Lincoln is not what we all grew up thinking he was, and there is some value to that, but I'd like to think we've moved beyond that now, and I think we need to start having people examine this question with care and also with an understanding of the various contexts with the way he looks at black and white people. I think you know, I would certainly agree with you that uh, Bennett's book was provocative and shook Lincoln scholarship out of uh, uh, into a, a degree of self-awareness it didn't have before he wrote. Uh, and as you were speaking, uh, I think you're absolutely right that Bennett does take every negative example he can find. But one of Bennett's points was that up to this time, many Lincoln biographers had taken every positive point they could find and wrung everything yeah. they could out of that, and he just turns that all upside down. Oh, I think he's absolutely right. I, I, um, I think if you look at earlier works on Lincoln, um, they, they, will, they will make it a point not to talk about some things that are firmly rooted in, um, in good evidence. Uh, for example, Lincoln on occasion lapsed into telling, telling racial jokes. Um, and the, it's, it's, it's not like this is all that questionable. There are many examples, and they come from reputable sources, and yet they very, very rarely made it into um, biographies of Lincoln from people who admired the man. They don't. They did tend to get left out, and and Bennett has forced people to revisit that. Think uh, think again. I think you also made a very good point that that Bennett's book is largely. Uh, I, I think it's fair to say to him that the product of disappointment that Lincoln is not who he had yeah. been brought up to see, and 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 Bennett is a little older than. Uh, 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 as old, older than I am, he wrote his first, uh, he wrote the, the groundbreaking article, was Abe Lincoln a White Supremacist in 1965. Uh, and I was yeah. still uh, reading the Bruce Catton for Young People at that time. <laughs> so he grew up in an era when, when Lincoln was really presented as, uh, as the great emancipator. And it turns out he's not a 20th century civil rights type guy. He's a 19th century yeah. person. And, I think you point the way to the future that as as generations grow up, learning about a more nuanced vision of Lincoln in his time, without not being presented as this world saving hero, uh, they won't be as disappointed when they find out. Yeah, he was a guy of the nineteenth century, and and uh, be able to take it more in stride. Uh, well, but a book like understand. yours will will certainly go away toward uh, uh, helping us understand that. Let me ask you about sources, that one of the problems, one reason perhaps why no one's written a book like yours before, is that, that as you said earlier, Lincoln never sits down and writes systematically about race for anyone. Uh, did he did he even have that 
many did he have many personal encounters with African Americans? And if he only had a few, do we risk hanging too much on each of those encounters? That's a great point, and and I, I tried not to. You know, um, I, I did explore the evidence that we have, um, and the truth is, you, I, I was actually struck by um, relatively recent scholarship on, say, for example, the um, the racial landscape of Springfield, um, and there's been some good research done by some people suggest that there were more people of color, uh, uh, African-Americans, and some really not Portuguese expatriates living in Springfield than you would have thought. So he, he did he did see more non-white people than you might think. But you're right, this was just a handful. Um, and, of course, as you know, I've, I've, I've done earlier work on Lincoln's law practice, and um, I went back through and looked at any cases involving African-Americans, and there were very few. Um, he had only a handful of um, African-American clients, and that sort of thing. So, yes, you're right. You do need to be careful because the encounters that he has with non-white people are sporadic and not very systematic. But even so, um, I think you can find good evidence that um, the, the black people that met Lincoln pretty uniformly say, I was struck by the fact that this man seemed to have been fairly not conscious of our racial differences. Frederick Douglass later says that. He says, um, I'm telling Lincoln was the only great American I ever met who didn't seem to notice the color of my skin. You know, so he did encounter black people in a variety of contexts, from his African-American barber in Springfield uh, to an African-American man named William Johnson, who he brought with him from Springfield to act as his personal uh, butler and servant, who died of uh, of disease in Washington, D.C. during the Civil War. And Lincoln not only paid his funeral expenses, but uh, Professor Michael Burlingame, and I'm sure you know his work quite well, uh, Michael recently told me he found um, some new documents showing that Lincoln paid off uh, Johnson's debts when he didn't even have to. That uh, another famous African American in the Lincoln household at the White House was, of course, uh, Elizabeth Keckley, uh, Mary yes. Lincoln's dressmaker. And uh, just because I know listeners will will be curious about this, I, I should ask you. And Mrs. Keckley appears in the the recent Lincoln movie, the Spielberg Lincoln right. uh, piece. Uh, what did you think of that movie, uh, both as it touches our topic today or in general? Well, um, the movie Lincoln has made my life very busy. This <laughs> uh, being the, the month of February, I think I've got eight eight speaking engagements, and at least half are people wanting me to talk about the movie. So I should be grateful. Actually, I'm getting a lot of good business. Uh, no, I um, I I think that even though there are errors in in the movie, um, so from what I understand, the entire state of Connecticut is now mad at Steven Spielberg. Apparently, he, yes. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, erroneously have them voting against the amendment when they didn't. But I, I, I felt about that film the way I also feel about another movie about the Civil War glory, um, which is basically there are mistakes, but the movie has its heart in the right place. And I feel that way about Lincoln. I think, yeah, there are details that should have been done better. Um, there are errors here and there that are annoying. But on the other hand, I especially like that in, in exchange that he has with Elizabeth Keckley in the film, where um, Keckley is speaking to Lincoln, and, and, and Spielberg didn't have Lincoln sounding like uh, some version of Martin Luther King. You know, he doesn't turn him into, um, you know, a totally sympathetic person. Lincoln's talking to Keckley in that scene, and he's saying, well, the truth is, I don't feel like I really know black people all that well. It, it was a very frank exchange. I thought that was excellent writing, and I thought, on the whole, the film 
I think the film did Lincoln justice with, with, without making it seem too maudlin and too unrealistic. That was my feeling. Well, I think that's a, a I, I share your views for the most part. I think that that's a good characterization of how it does handle that. One of the criticisms that has been leveled against the film is that it doesn't sufficiently put African Americans in the foreground of the emancipation story and uh, I, I don't know your response to that would be mine would be that, that that's a different movie yeah, uh, totally. and, and, yeah. And, and yet I suppose one can say one can be critical that no one has made that movie but uh, as far as this one goes, it's it's a. Uh, well, it, it does. I, I think people need to understand the problems they had in making this movie. The movie was originally Spielberg purchasing the movie rights to the book Team of Rivals, and he did this several years ago when Team of Rivals was so popular. And then, um, from what I understand, they tried to hammer a script out based on Team of Rivals, which is a huge book, and they were really having difficulty with trying to find some kind of focus they make a film out of. They very nearly shelved the whole thing until they came up with the idea of focusing on this battle for the 13th Amendment. And I, I would imagine Spielberg's answer would be, look, I had to keep this thing focused. If I started throwing in everything, it would have been a mess. You know, you, good storytelling is, is, a, is a sharply focused endeavor. And yes, I would have liked to have seen Frederick Douglass in this film, because you know, I'm sure you know, we both know he, he met Lincoln several times and all that. But how many different storylines can you introduce before the movie just falls apart? And I tend to think that that was probably the decision here. Well, that that makes a lot of sense, and there is an important there's a need to be focused. All history is is excluding more than it is including. Uh, yeah, there's absolutely. always more material than than we have to fit in a book uh, or a series of books or to our movie script. There's no way to say everything you want to say, so we have to cut, and that's perhaps what happened there. Yeah. Well, let me ask, uh, what are you working on now? Do you have anything else in the Lincoln or Civil War vein? Uh, well, um, yeah, to tell you the truth, um, I, I, I got into the unenviable position of having um, two book contracts at the same time. The same month that Lincoln and White America came out, I also wrote a book called Lincoln and the Constitution for the Concise Lincoln Library series from Southern Illinois, and I didn't mean for it to turn out that way, but it did. And i got to tell you, when um, I got done doing both those books, at the same time, I was just exhausted. So I've taken a couple of months off. Um, I've thought I might try and do some work with um, Lincoln's leadership during the summer of 1864. I'm thinking about looking at his ability to have um, Americans endure during the wilderness campaign and the re-election campaign. I'm also interested in the civil liberties issues surrounding the Vlandingham case. i got a couple of ideas I'm kind of kicking around right now. Well, you, you've obviously been busy. Uh, the listeners will not only want to look at Abraham Lincoln and white America, but you mentioned uh, your, your work on Lincoln, the lawyer. You've also written about Lincoln and Davis, uh, comparing the, the the ways in which Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis conceptualized the nature of our American community. It was a very interesting, uh, uh, very interesting argument there. So, uh, and now Lincoln and the Constitution, along with this. So, yeah, you have been busy. Uh, yeah, a little too busy. My 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 wife complains. <laughs> Honey, you need to put Lincoln down for a while, you know. But um, I'm I'm gonna get back on some stuff here pretty soon. I think. Yeah. Well, while you're while you're doing that, listeners, you will want to go out and get a copy of Abraham Lincoln in White America, and uh, have a look at this new way of thinking about Lincoln in the racial environment of his era. Uh, it's good. It's 
relatively short as these things go. It's not Team of Rivals, which I think is a good thing. Uh, and, and not that that's a bad book, but uh, it's good to have something you can read, digest, absorb, and, and think about. Uh, and Brian, uh, it has been a pleasure talking with you. I cannot believe it was 15 years ago that uh, you came by the the Lincoln Library, Lincoln Museum Library in, in Fort Wayne. But uh, it's it's good to connect. Uh, well, yeah, thank you, you too, for, Jerry. And Absolutely. listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network.